I'm good. I'm in a good mood because I had this gross stain on my t-shirt. Um, it was this cute little Mario shirt and it had this gross brown stain on it. I think came from the washing machine and nothing would get this stain out. I tried this stain remover and I tried bleach gel and nothing worked. And so I was Googling it and it it turned out it could be a rust stain oh. from a rusted washing machine. And so this website suggested this like toxic rust remover that can burn your skin off or, <laughs> or salt and lemon juice. And so- Wow, I, I would have definitely th- gone with the salt and lemon juice. <laughs> well, it definitely saved me a trip to the grocery store. And I put the salt and lemon juice on the stain and it's gone. Oh, wow. Yeah, I'm so happy. So now I, can, I know I can wear my cute little Mario shirt now. I guess the rust, something in the rust, like will break down from the acid in the lemon juice. Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah. Um, well, anyway, that's my banter. Okay. Why don't you introduce yourself? Hi, I'm Josh Gross. I'm Chance Lee. And this is Gross Misinterpretation, the podcast where we examine popular media from a queer viewpoint. We will be starting with Stephen King books. And we give laundry tips. Apparently. Okay, so um, this episode, we read Stephen King's book, Rose Matter, and we're going to compare plot summaries and see what we each think this book was about. So I'll go first. Are you ready? Yes, I'm ready. Okay. Uh, Rosie Daniels leaves her husband, Norman, a violently abusive, racist, homophobic misogynist, and flees across the country. In an unfamiliar city, she finds a women's shelter, gets a job narrating audiobooks, and buys a strange painting with a powerful pull on her psyche. Norman, a cop, stalks Rosie across the country and kills many people in his way. And bites their dicks off, but I didn't put that in my summary. When he when he reaches her, the two of them travel into the mysterious painting Mario 64 style, where Norman transforms into a minotaur and Rosie leads him to a demon woman named Rose Matter who eats Norman. No one in the book has seen the Golden Girls. All right, that was fantastic and um, a lot more in-depth than I think mine is going to be. (laughs) Okay, share yours. All right. Rose Daniels, after years of domestic abuse at the hands of her psychotic cop husband, decides to run away to a new city. With the help of a group of kind women at a shelter, Rose starts to build a new life for herself. She also finds a mysterious painting that literally transports her to a strange world where she must outsmart a blind bull in a labyrinth to rescue a baby for a scary, rotting Greek lady and her sassy black friend. Unbeknownst to Rose, (laughs) Norman has been hunting her down, destroying lives and becoming crazier and more dick-hungry until he finds her. They both go into the painting, Norman turns into a bull, and crazy, scary Greek lady turns into a man-bull-eating spider monster to repay Rose for her baby-finding services. That was very vivid. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah. And and all true. So do you want to give us the context on this book? Um, yes. So Rose Matter was written in 1994 and it came out in 95. And in 94, um, I think more 
um, HIV was becoming a lot more mainstream um, as people realized that straight people could get HIV also. Um, I mean, if T- Tom Hanks can get HIV in Philadelphia, anyone can get HIV. Um, <gasps> That's true. So I think that's why the book has so many AIDS references in it. Um, it was surprising how many AIDS references the book had in it, actually, as I was reading it again, especially compared to some of his more recent books that don't mention it at all. Um, and there was no reason to mention it. Nobody in the book actually had AIDS. It reminded me of that Team America song, Everybody Has AIDS. <laughs> yes. Um, but this was a part of a time during Stephen King's career where he was um, more sober and more forward thinking um, and trying to be more feminist, I think. Um, he had a few books like this, all kind of in the same same time period. Dolores Claiborne and Gerald's Game being the other two, um, and I think more successful books. And then I guess after Rose Matter, um, he decided to move on um, with The Green Mile. Um, Rose Matter turned out to be um, everyone's least favorite Stephen King book. Um, and even Stephen King himself seems to throw it under the bus a lot um, in interviews. And I think in his book on writing, he even talked about it being terrible. Um, he did describe it in one interview, I think, as him as him trying too hard. And I remember him saying that also about another book that he did as Richard Bachman called Roadwork, um, which I can definitely agree with. He was trying too hard with that one for sure. Well, I was looking up the in, an interview with him and um, or in a different article. They're talking about how he doesn't like that book. And he says, I've had bad books. And I think Rose Matter fits in that category because it never really took off. And from that quote, it sounds like he just thinks it's a bad book because, like, people didn't buy it. Which is weird. Like, yeah. So, I mean, is he does he only think it's a bad book, do you think, because if it's um, because it was less than successful or because he actually thinks like it was poorly written? Well, I did see the one interview where he said he was trying too hard. So, I mean, there's that. Um, but I mean, it did have a pretty dismal reception and that probably definitely influenced his opinion of the book as well. Um, I also remember people at the time, um, suggesting that his wife was writing these books. Um, in fact, I specifically remember at the time people saying that they thought that, oh, Stephen King's letting his wife write his books now, um, because they had that, that more female, slant to them and that's something that's even continued to this day i saw somebody on reddit who was suggesting that tabitha king had written the rose daniels part of the book and uh, that stephen king had written the norman part right how old is he now very old well i mean (laughs) i it didn't occur to me this would be something i would need to know so i didn't bother to look it up I'll look it up right now real quick. He's 71. He'll be 72 on September 21st. Oh, gosh. I did not know he was that old. Yeah. Well, maybe that would help us segue into him being an old person and just generally out of touch with everything. Um, <laughs> so, <laughs> so even in 1995, which was, what, 20 years ago? So he uh-huh. was in his, he was, what, late 40s then? Yeah. Um, and I guess, you know, maybe he he saw Philadelphia and heard of rent and then gave everyone AIDS. Um, <clears throat> but so where do we want to start first? Do we want to start with um, Norman? Yeah, so I figured we could start with the specific queerness of the book um, with um, the 
specifically mentioned queer people or behavior that is in the book. And Norman is certainly number one. Mm-hmm. Um, and he is an example of the uh, deviant bisexual, um, also known as deviant homosexual or variations of that, um, where a person is so depraved, they will have sex with anyone. Um, and like queer behavior is kind of connected to deviant behavior. Mm-hmm. Yeah. He, he, and he's, he's also uh, like brutally homophobic as well. Yes. So even though he like, exhibits this queer behavior and he's completely evil, he's also very homophobic and says really horrible homophobic things. Um, yeah. The first time he meets, so he, he, so after Rosie runs away, he is trying to track her down. And so he ends up finding someone named Ramon who, okay. So, so Rosie took his bank card, took Norman's bank card to withdraw money. And then she threw it in the garbage can. And then Ramon who was at the bus station, saw her do that and took it and started using it. So the police caught him. Right. Is that right? Yeah. And so, so when, Ramon is our other, is one of our other queers in the book. Or as Norman calls him, a greasy little half-breed cock gobbler. <laughs> yes. Yes. I told a friend of mine that, and he goes, ew, greasy? <laughs> like, that was, like, that was the main takeaway. I don't like greasy, he said. <laughs> and poor Ramon is always greasy. He's also a greasy little penis vacuum. response was, every time I hear that, I laugh uncontrollably. <laughs> <laughs> it's so fact, specific yeah. it's so penis weirdly vacuum. like penis vacuum has anyone ever said penis vacuum before i have never heard it in 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 any capacity i have only read it in the stephen king novel maybe it was more popular back in 19, 1994 but i was a teenager at the time so i don't think people were talking about penis vacuums too much yeah he's also a stinking little rump wrangler um that phrase includes a racial slur that i won't say and a greasy little cocksucker yes um i think i think ramon was supposed to be mexican yeah well yes because he pukes and vomits up like a burrito or something yeah i thought that was really gross and really racist yeah, um, just in general. I mean, I don't even think that was from Norman's point of view racist. I think that was just Stephen King racist. Right, because I don't think Norman knew. Did no wait? Norman was there when he threw up, right? Because he's so he throws up because Norman is squeezing his testicles. Yes, Norman is. Um, yes, he was jacking him off in a public park in front of everyone. Um, oh, because gays love that. Yes. And then um, and then decides to squeeze his balls to emphasize his point as he's threatening him, um, causing him to throw up. But I think the description of him throwing up was just all Stephen King. It wasn't like it was specifically from Norman's point of view. I mean, it was Norman's point of view, but I don't think Norman was looking at it going, oh, look at all the stuff in his vomit. Look at my burrito. Um, yeah. I'll look it up if you want to talk about why uh, Ramon is gay. Well, um, Ramon seems to be specifically gay, um, but it seems to be caused by um, this rape and switch trope um, that's used quite a bit, um, where childhood sexual trauma um, causes people to 
turn gay or be queer when they grow up. Um, Ramon had, um, what, it was two friends of his dad's that liked to do things to him, if I recall. Uh-huh. Yep. Um, and apparently that made him gay. Um, and then Norman's dad um, also liked to do things to Norman in a sexual manner. And that apparently gave Norman his deviant bisexuality tendencies as well. Right. So. There aren't any queer characters in this, but they're, they're the only two, right? Two queer men, and they were both molested as children. Well, there's Norman's dad, but he barely counts as a character because he's not literally in the book. He just comes back as a ghost to yell at Norman. Right, and he might not necessarily be queer. He's just He might just be a child molester. Right. But yeah, so I found... Um, so Ramon Except, has... Oh, sorry. I'm sorry, just to... to add to that um yeah we could have gone the whole book with just assuming norman's dad was a pedophile um except for one throwaway line towards the end where norman literally calls him an old queer so at least norman is connecting queerness to pedophilia um if not stephen king himself and isn't it suggested at one point that like when norman was a rookie cop he had like an older partner who would do things to him Oh, I don't remember that. Yeah, let me see um, if I can find that. I know Norman and his partner, uh, or at least one of his partners, were both kind of on the sketchy side, especially when it came to uh, battering their vic- their victims. Yeah, Norman definitely is a... Uh, he's known for his police brutality. Yes, and it sounded like at least his partner during the Windy Yarrow thing um, was similar in nature with their so um, embracing of like, brutality. Tell us about Windy Yarrow. So she's a character that's inside the painting. No, she's um, she's a real person um, that um, oh. Norman interacts with in the the story that gives her a bunch of trouble because they like beat the crap out of her and like she says something about it um, and causes trouble for him. And then I think he kills her and dumps her body somewhere. And then she comes, well, Rose kind of interprets um, the black woman in the painting as being Wendy Yarrow, even though she is not, she is Dorcas. Okay. Let's come back to that later. Okay. Um, I did find, so Norman talks about his partner, Gordon, and it says Gordon had a habit of grabbing his young associate, that's Norman, and telling him it was time to do a little of what he called the old gumshoe. And I don't know if that's supposed to be sexual or not. Yeah, I I never noticed that before. So um, it either wasn't or I was just skimming along because sometimes Stephen King makes me want to just skim because he puts just so much into his books so much unnecessary writing well that comes uh, up when he's killing the man peter slowick is his name peter who helps rosie find the women's shelter daughters and sisters Um, i think that's slovic slovic okay so while he's like killing this man and and biting his penis off he starts thinking of his old partner yeah, that's interesting, especially considering it sounds like his old partner is very similar to his dad. Yeah. 
Norman is experiencing a history of older men touching him inappropriately and telling him what to do. And it's interesting because his, you know, his dad's voice continues to live inside his head and propel him through his mad chasing of Rosie and everything that in, that happens from there. Well, I will say one thing I actually did like about the book um, is that, you know, Rosie also has this voice inside her head that's kind of telling her to to not do things, this kind of voice of fear. Um, sensible, she been, practical. Yes, and she eventually realizes that that voice is actually the voice of, you know, Norman, in a way, her abuser keeping her from doing things. And so even though yes. I feel like it was might be unconscious, you know, you do have two characters that are both kind of driven by this abuse, but in different ways. No, that's a good point. Um, I remember noticing that as I was reading this most recently, um, the voice in her head, Miss Sensible Practical, um, didn't seem so terrible when I was reading it the first several times as a teenager, but as I was reading it as an adult, I was like, this voice is terrible and giving you bad advice. Yes. And she does eventually realize that and come to those terms. Um, one thing I, uh, I did like about Norman is that there was this... Um, time where he turns off his radio because he didn't want to listen to any of that hippy dippy hey jude crap <laughs> and i was just like same like same <laughs> yes and, norman has a, a lot of uh boomer references surrounding him well that's in this really weird part of the book where he also makes references to star trek and lex luther and <laughs> i'm like is norman norman's a trekkie who like reads comic books it just didn't yeah. seem to fit his character at all yeah that was weird because yeah he didn't he definitely doesn't seem like the type no and and he's also like perpetually haunted by these dreams of a giant credit card which i like they're written like they're actually supposed to be tormenting this guy but i just found it hilarious yeah, he did seem overly um, concerned about the whole she stole his credit card thing. Um, He's and to, insane about that credit card. I know. And um, yeah, the dream, him having nightmares about giant credit cards is really ridiculous. Yeah, and there's no sense of humor in it. Like if this were written today, I would want him to be dreaming about the credit card and like Jennifer Garner pops up and is like, what's in your wallet? Nothing, bitch. <laughs> and, you know, have it really go over the top. Yeah, that would definitely improve the book. Yeah. Um, but one other thing uh, about that I have about Norman is that he has this rant um, late in the book. Um, I think this is when... So he ends up tracking Rosie down to this festival that we'll talk about in a minute. Right. Um, and everybody there is happy. And since Norman's a miserable person, he's not happy. Um, and he says, what in God's name did they have to laugh about? Didn't they understand what the world was like? Didn't they see that everything, everything was on the verge of going down the tubes? He realized with dismay that they all looked like lover girls and fag boys to him now, all of them, as if the world had degenerated into a cesspool of one sex lovers, women who were thieves, men who were liars, none of them with any respect for the glue that held society together. Holy cow. That was pretty epic, but it, it, that really, I mean, I feel like we still get this, I mean, not as verbose, but this is almost like the, 
the make America great argument, you know, like, like look at what the world's yes. become now. Can't we go back to the past? Yes. It's suggesting that, you know, everything is just garbage now um, because, because what we're more accepting of other people. We have more empathy towards them. Um, I don't, yeah, I don't understand that. Once I went um, onto the Facebook page of someone who was an old boss of mine at the, at a bookstore, you probably know what I'm talking about or who I'm oh, talking yeah. about. Uh-huh. And um, she had this article about um, why everyone should be against uh, gender neutral bathrooms, I think. <laughs> oh my God. Um, and it was basically, I mean, they might as well have just copied and pasted this argument into the, into the article about how it kind of started in a way like I trying, I was trying to see things from her perspective, you know, and just trying to understand this. Sure. And, and it started off kind of rational if, if, if uh, a little bit misguided, but like how, you know, people are trying to break down gender barriers and stuff like that. I'm like, yep, yep. Okay. I'm with you. And then it quickly went into like how this will be the like disillusion of heterosexuality and society as we know it is over. Like oh it went God. from, normal to crazy so fast but one other thing when when norman finds rosie like he confronts her he finally catches up to her and they confront each other for the first time the very first thing he says to her is you stole my bank card bitch (laughs) it's the first line he's so obsessed with that he is he has a problem he has many problems but that was definitely one of the main ones do you have anything else to say about norman um, I just remember um, reading it this time around that all of his chapters, they're just all from his point of view, um, which kind of gave Stephen King a pass on his usual male gaze and stuff like that, because um, it's all coming from Norman. Um, but it was just page after page after page of misogyny and homophobia and racism and just garbage being spewed at you sentence after sentence page after page and um, it really affected me i was like i wonder how you know what kind of effect this had on me as a as a teenager reading this um and what Mm. kind of effect it had on other people um because stephen king for better or worse has definitely influenced the literary landscape um and the minds of everyone who grew up reading his books um and this one in particular literally just has page after page of terrible garbage well, it kind of like, especially the the Norman sections, you know, where you do get these endless, uh, you know, racist phrases or homophobic phrases or misogynistic phrases. And they're all very creative, like creative to the extent where like, I don't think any human being actually says these things ever, but it almost feels like a cards against humanity thing where like, you actually do enjoy saying it, but it's fun to say it as long as you couch it and this is inappropriate. You know, like Stephen yeah. King seems to have fun writing this type of like racist and homophobic garbage. I agree. But, I felt the same way. Yeah, but he's able to say this is appropriate because it's the bad guy saying it. You're not supposed to like him. Right. And I know yeah. that Stephen King in general has fairly liberal politics, um, but, you know. Well, there's I, a lot I, of people I, with liberal politics who are still like think it's OK to make racist jokes. Oh, well, that's true. Um, also, just from a writing perspective, all of Norman's sections are in all italics, which is ridiculous. It is ridiculous, and I hated it. And 
uh, when I went back to see what Ramon threw up, it was a quesadilla. Quesadilla, and that's what I thought, yes. It was a quesadilla, but quesadilla is not in italics, which means that if it were just a nor- written normally, quesadilla would be italicized as if it's like a foreign phrase. Oh, my goodness. Which, I mean, it is, but like it, it's, you know, we just call it a quesadilla. It's not like he's writing in another language. I mean, even in 1994, they sold him at Taco Bell. Right. Norman's also, I mean, nor, sorry, Ramon is also described as having cafe au lait skin, and that is also a uh, non-italicized and then otherwise italicized section. Interesting. Yeah. I did um, notice that um, blacks, Jews, gays all seem to only exist in this book for Norman to victimize. Like, I think that's why um, Peter and, um, oh, what her what's her boyfriend's name? I think that's why Bill? they were... Yeah, I think that's why they were Jewish in the first place, so that he could say terrible things about Jews. Yeah, if you've got some good, you know, Holocaust jokes, you don't want those going to waste. Oh, my goodness. But there is the, like, oh, sorry, go on. No, I was just reiterating. It just just seemed like, you know, if he was going to have a black person in the book or a gay person or a Jewish person, um, it was specifically so that Norman could victimize them or abuse them or say horrible things about them, either out loud or in his mind. Well, there is the gigantic black woman who teaches self-defense classes. Gert. Gert. Is that short for Gert- Gertrude? Gertrude, yes. That just, uh, yeah. And so, I mean, she actually ends up, well, she beats the shit out of him and pees on his face. Um, well, he did not like so, that. So she's able to at least get somewhat of an upper hand on him, but he still, there's just endless phrases about not only her being black but her being fat yes and stephen king has a history of fat shaming um through a lot of his books and um, kind of a another one of his issues yeah that could that could get to be a little much but that that closes out norman for me yeah i think we've we've covered norman pretty well let's talk about the welfare lesbians welfare lesbians were any of them actually lesbians I don't think so. Because I I vividly remember reading this as a teenager and thinking that at least one of them was, was actually a lesbian, but it might have just been all this welfare lesbian bullshit that was being, you know, I was reading um, because I was trying to see if anyone in there was actually a lesbian when I was reading it this time, and, and nobody seemed like they were. Um, my, my prime candidate was Gert, um, but I don't even think he's explicitly stated she was a lesbian either. No, I don't think there's a single lesbian in the book. Okay. They're all just suspected of being lesbians, but it's almost implied then like, no, they're okay because they're not actually lesbians. Yes, they seem to be resistant to being labeled lesbians as, you know, um, despite their booking um, the Indigo Girls for their big festival where they let everybody, including their abusers, know where they're all going to be. Right. So we're talking about the women of Daughters and Sisters, which is, for lack of a better word, like a battered women's shelter, sort women's of, right? Shelter, yes. Yeah. And so, but people, so, so Rosie is referred to them when she shows up all haggard and disheveled and panicky at the bus station. <laughs> and, but other people in town call them the welfare lesbians or uh, <laughs> another phrase that I don't think any human being has ever said besides Stephen King, the crack snackers. 
Yes, and as you pointed out, this is not the the only occasion where he calls uh, lesbians crack stackers. That's insane. Yes, I w- we're going to be talking about Elevation later, which was written when last year, twenty eighteen, yeah. uh-huh. and they use crack snackers in that too. He's still using it. It's been twenty three years, and that bitch is still saying crack snackers. Another phrase that I have never heard in the real world. No, and and also so so this this book. Is you said it's supposed to be Chicago where she runs off to? Yeah, well, it's pretty obvious that it's Chicago, but for some reason he didn't want to explicitly state it as Chicago, even though he literally names a Chicago street in the course of writing the book. Um, it's yeah, pretty I love how you say how. <laughs> I like how you said, it. oh, it's pretty obvious it's Chicago twice, and I'm like, where is she? I have no idea. Okay, well, I didn't mean it in a. You know, you should know. <laughs> you should know better. Um, it it's obvious, obvious to everyone me. but me. It seemed obvious to me um, that that's where it was going. And maybe I've also read things, other things, where people have said, "Oh, this is you know clearly Chicago." Um, I tried to figure out where she came from in the first place by judging by the distance that he gave us and the direction she came from. Um, but um, either he was um, exaggerating or underestimating the mileage. Um, or she just comes from nowhere in particular. She's on an island in the Atlantic. That must be it, yes. Off the coast of Maine. <laughs> well, these um, these welfare lesbians, of which none of them are actually lesbians, um, the, the woman who founded... No, wait, was it her, her parents founded Daughters and Sisters, and she kind of yeah. inherited it. Her name's Anna Stevenson. And she's described with usually pretty masculine terminology. She is. Um, one thing I noticed he kept calling her was arrogant and handsome. Um, but he's mentioned arrogant at mm. least three or four times, um, which kind of bugged me because I was like, whatever. Um, and um, handsome and B. Arthur um, on several occasions. Well, so I wrote this down because he calls her Beatrice Arthur, which, which is I don't know if she was ever actually credited as Beatrice. Um, and only and then later on, they just call her Maud. Oh, that's right. Yes. And that's a strange thing to connect her to, especially in 1994, when B. Arthur's most famous thing at the time would have been Golden Girls. Yes, that's why I said in my summary, no one has seen Golden Girls because uh, both Rosie and Norman call her Maud. But on the other hand, and, considering his age, perhaps that's that's just what they would have first known her from and what they immediately connect her to. I guess so. I, I, I don't think Maud was really in repeats. I still think they would have thought her as Dorothy. I mean, that does seem more like... Yeah, I mean, that's what I've always thought when he said B. Arthur from Maud. I've always thought, oh, what about Golden Girls? And there's a Rose character on Golden Girls. There's a relation there. Yeah, saying, um, I'm not sure why um, he felt that this character needed to be so much like B. Arthur or have so many masculine traits um, or be so masculine in a group of women that are characterized as lesbians um, when none of them actually are. And she even has an ex-husband. Um, I don't I don't understand the point. Well, I think all characters should be more like B. Arthur, but I get what you're saying. <laughs> yes. 
but yeah, he he really overdoes like the the whole lesbian angle with them, trying to make us think that they're all possible lesbians. Yeah, and that's another thing that made me think about what was going into my mind when I was reading this book as a teenager, because he literally influenced me into thinking at least one of them was a lesbian without explicitly explicitly stating any of them were. Right. Um, and they, they do the whole Indigo Girls concert, which yeah. if they're so desperate to not be labeled lesbians, why hire the Indigo Girls? I know they they're definitely lesbians. They've always been lesbians and they've had if they haven't been shy about telling people they're lesbians. Um, and that's one of the things people connect with the Indi- Indigo Girls immediately, even in 1994, is that they're lesbians. Well, it's almost like he's equating feminism with being a lesbian. Yes. You know, this kind of like man-hating dyke stereotype of a feminist. Like he's literally doing it and he's kind of doing it from the perspective of Norman or people that just aren't feminists. Right. And it seems like his his attempt at deconstructing that is just to be like, but they're not lesbians. Right. <laughs> And there's nothing else beyond that because there's some very specific like phrases, like even Rose Matter in the painting says men are beasts. Yes. You know, there's this type of, of dialogue. And then one of my favorite ones is when they're at the, the beachfront or whatever, the, the boardwalk event, the concert, there's a sign, someone's holding a sign that says Jesus Ina died for your sins. Yes. Is that supposed to be like a female Jesus? I guess so. Um, And yeah, he seems to be taking this idea of feminism and feminists and exaggerating it or just going with the more um, stranger, more overt, more man-hating variety. Well, I mean, he clearly made up Jesusina. Like I Googled (laughs) Jesusina and that is not like a thing that is on is on the internet at all yeah that that's a new one yes that was insane that's right up there with jesusina was probably a crack snacker in stephen king's (laughs) mind lesbian jesus lesbian jesus amen um anna stevenson does have her own um statement about aids Um, If you recall, she makes a weird comment that I'm not sure if it was supposed to be a joke or not, but they're talking about Robert Mapplethorpe. um, And she says he died of what she call it? Broom handles disease. Oh my God. That's right. So, so someone else, well, someone else says that, right. And then she says that AIDS is also known as broom handle disease or something. Yes. As if she needed to clarify that to, to Cynthia, I think, was um, who brought it up. And that's also mm-hmm. like, well, that's insane. And then it's also this weird thing because Rosie talks about how Norman raped her with the handle of a tennis racket. Yes. Which is also insane, just to think yeah. about the logistics of that. And the fact that she she refers to it in such a casual way, she says she had been cornholed with the handle of a tennis racket. I know that I don't even know what to think of that. It, like that um, just sounds so casual. Like, oh yeah, 
It does. And I remember seeing those moments in the book where I was like, oh, yeah, this horrible nightmare thing happened to her. Did she ever actually, did they actually ever delve into that scene or does she just reference it every once in a while? I think it's only referenced two or three times just for like the hell of it. And one time mentioned as cornholing. Okay. Cornholed. Yeah. Yeah. Which is old, old uncle, uncle Stevie. But yeah, I was looking through my notes here. Norman also calls daughters and sisters lesbo babes in Toyland. Yeah. That was a, that was a creative one. That's another crazy one. Oh, and uh, even though you, you were talking about the male gaze earlier, how a lot of that comes from Norman's chapters of these women, but there's one chapter where the POV character is girl and Cynthia walks away and we see her small, but undeniably cute Fanny ticking back and forth like the pendulum of a clock. Yes. There were quite a few examples of maybe Stephen King's male gaze coming through while he's writing from the point of view of a female character. Um, mm-hmm. either, which is probably unintentional because he didn't say any of them were lesbians and I don't think he's clever enough to just subtly suggest that they have female attraction. Um, because I remember her, I remember Rose like focusing on some other lady's nipples. It might've even been Cynthia's, um, which I thought was weird. And I was like, does she often notice other women's nipples and talk about them <laughs> in her mind? Or is it just this woman's nipples that are particularly attractive to her? It's cold in Chicago. <laughs> oh, I so going back to what you said about broom handles disease. Oh yeah. Um, they're talking about Robert. Is it Maplethorpe or Mapplethorpe? I was never I sure how to say know. his name. Doesn't matter. So they they were talking one. about his. They're talking about his photography and how one of them is of one guy gobbling another's crank. Yes. And the the phrase gobble, gobble, uh, that's not something that I, I mean, people, I guess, say it, but I've never said gobble in my life if it's not Thanksgiving. And well, there are cock gobblers. That there are cock gobblers. But also one of the characters, one of the maids at the uh, hotel, whose name is Consuela, because of course that's the maid's name. Yes. Um, she gobbles some Midol. Oh, Yes. Which just struck me like, I, is anyone, like, how many pills did she take? <laughs> like, like, I picture her upending this bottle and just, like, chugging these pills. Yeah, because, like, you know, without even water. Period, they need to take at least 40 Midol at a time. Right. Just vacuum it up, like, <laughs> like Ramon and penises. That's right. Like a penis vacuum. Like a, but a Midol vacuum. He does call Norman's dad a world-class cock gobbler. Oh, well, there you go. Yeah, so there's three gobbles in this book. A lot of gobbling going on. <laughs> a lot of gobbling. Uh-huh. Um, there's also, uh, speaking of other weird, weird phrases, there's when Rose is looking for daughters and sisters, there's like a drunk or somebody outside the bar. And that's David. Yeah, and, David Crosby looking guy. And he yells at her like, Hey, babe, let's have four on the floor. And do the dog, yes. Yes, and she just hears that, like, every other chapter. His, his, like, head floats by and, like, says this to her, echoing. 
Yes, throughout the entire book, and then even at the end, when they're running around in the painting, his ghost comes back as a statue or something, and is mm-hmm. still saying these gross things to her. And I'm like, oh my goodness, this this really affected her, apparently. Yeah, that was bizarre. And Norman calls people New Age fern sniffers. Fern sniffers, yes, that was a strange one. And is that like a... Uh, a marijuana reference like what's a fern like oh that was the only you know that's the only thing i can think of maybe so i never gave it I, much thought i understood from the context what he was saying but i never really thought much about it i'm not even sure if it's a thing that people say or if he just made it up i will google fern sniffers right now so i already googled it and oh, the great. only thing that had come up was like a there's a song by some metal group that I've never heard of called New oh. Age Fern Sniffers, and they must have gotten it from this book. Oh, yeah, because there's a lot about that band. and They must have been inspired by the book. Yeah, because that's the only other example. Of, and then Google literally pulls up Rose Matter. So I guess Stephen King is the only yeah. one to ever use the term New Age Fern Sniffers. Maybe if I have the opportunity, I'll try to tweet him and ask him what the heck a fern sniffer is. Well, stay tuned for our debut as a band, Jesusina and the Fern Sniffers. <laughs> that would be a really great band name. Yeah, really would. Anything else on on daughters and sisters, the welfare lesbians and the there was snackers? one other thing. Um, t- going back to when she was trying to find daughters and sisters, she bumped into this really awful woman who was like taking out her garbage or something. Um, that, mm-hmm. that talks about them being welfare lesbians and crack snackers and i was just like this seems like an awful lot of hostility coming out of a random woman who has no connection to them whatsoever other than living somewhat close to them yeah that's true i think it was all just to emphasize how alone and fearful she was and how the world seemed to her at the time um but it also seemed kind of unrealistic yeah it really comes out especially in like a a city you know, she's supposed yeah. to be in a big city. I mean, even in 1995, I mean, not to say that everyone was accepting, but yeah, for to just blurt that out at a, at a stranger just seems a little intense. It's, um, but what else do we want to say about Rose Matter? I did seem to notice it was making about three overall statements about queerness in general, um, whether intentionally or unintentionally. Um, one is that queerness is caused by childhood sexual abuse. Mm-hmm. This is... Um, This is illustrated by Norman, of course, and Ramon later. Um, And that queerness is uh, an aspect of deviant behavior, Mm -hmm. um, which is Norman and possibly Norman's dad and possibly Norman's partner now, apparently. Right. Um, And then, like I said at the end, where Stephen King connects queerness to pedophilia, Um, With Mm -hmm. just this one throwaway line that just pissed me off because we had almost gotten through the whole damn book without that happening. And then he threw that line in there and I was like, man, that which line was this? Um, he, Norman is running around in the painting and his dad comes back as a ghost in a statue or something, um, and is yelling something at him. And he says something like, shut up, you old queer. Oh, that's right. But we don't have any other examples of his dad being queer. We just have an example of his dad being a pedophile. Um, And they're not differentiated. So they're just kind of brought together into the same thing. Right. 
Yeah. And I think that that's all emphasized by the but by the daughters and sisters not being lesbians like they can be good guys because they're not lesbians. Oh, yeah, that's another good point and depressing point as well. Yes. Yeah. We can call them lesbians, but they're not actually lesbians because if they were, they would be the villains. Yeah. But aside from all of that problematic bullshit, what did you think of this book? Um, well, um, when I was a teenager, I really liked it. Um, I kind of identified with Rose's isolation. Uh, there'd been many times where I kind of been on my own, um, especially taking a bus across the country. Um, and so all of that I kind of related to, and I kind of liked the idea of setting out on your own and starting a new life. And I was really rooting for her and I thinking about how fun it would be to, you know, find a painting and putting it in your apartment and decorating it and, um, not to mention I was immersed in Stephen King literature at the time. So it was, uh, it was all working for me. reading it again as an adult. I liked it a lot less. Um, it's still very readable and entertaining. Um, but now I can kind of look at it from a different perspective and be like, okay, it has a lot of problems. Yeah. I, this is my first time reading it because you forced me to read it. Uh-huh. And, um, I, it was weird. Yeah. Despite how insanely problematic it is. I mean, we have like 16 pages of notes on like yes. all, all the, all the issues we had with it. I, I, I actually enjoyed reading it like as a story, like yeah. I looked forward to getting up and reading it with my morning coffee and seeing what was going on. And there was some fun, like I liked, so Rose gets her job as an audiobook narrator, which I thought was really cool. Yeah. And especially since I learned that Kathy Bates narrated an audiobook of Silence of the Lambs. Um, oh, yeah. Which I'll never listen to because it's abridged. It's only three CDs. Um, oh, yeah. So I thought that was cool. And I guess Stephen King just wanted to talk about how good Kathy Bates was because she was I'm in sure. misery. Yes. Um, I also liked then, how she was doing um, audiobooks of uh, women who are writing as men. Oh, I, for- I missed that detail. Yes. I mean, not right away, but well, actually, yes, right away. Um, And she just ended up doing a whole series of them, which I thought was neat. Yeah, the the books did sound interesting. And there are also references. Aren't there references to the the author from Misery? Oh, yes. um, Paul Sheldon. Um, Also, Misery is referenced um, in the beginning. Rosie is beat up by Norman because she's just sitting around reading one of the misery books and that prompts him to start beating her. Um, I think that's when she had her miscarriage in the very beginning. I think so. And you told me the book is also connected to the dark tower. Yeah, it's connected to a few other ones. Um, It's connected obviously to the dark tower, especially when they're in the painting um, because she mentions Ka, K-A, which is, um, a, a thing in the Dark Tower series. Um, I that had I'm no even... idea what that was. Yeah, it's kind of difficult to explain. Um, and I really should have looked up somebody else's definition of it. Um, but I don't know. It's kind of like a connection or a spiritual thing um, in the Dark Tower series um, or fate or something. Um, and then she also mentions the city of Lud, um, which is also a Dark Tower reference, and it comes up in the Wastelands. Um, at the end of the Wastelands, they literally go to the city of Lud and um, have quite an adventure. And then, um, 
The other reference is Cynthia herself. She's one of the women at Daughters and Sisters, and she is known for being young, and um, she doesn't sound particularly attractive, and she has green hair on one side and orange hair on the other. And she pops up in uh, the other Stephen King book, Desperation, which I believe came out after this one, um, like right after this one, or around the same time. And then um, she also pops up in the Richard Bachman book, The Regulators, Richard Bachman also being Stephen King. But The Regulators and Desperation were kind of connected books, kind of like Dolores Claiborne and um, Gerald's Game are connected. Um, They have this connection between them, and Cynthia is in both. And then Cynthia also pops up here in, um, in Rose Matter. Oh, yeah. Regulation, Regulators and Desperation came out the following year in 1996. Boy, he was busy during that time period. Well, I mean, I think it shows in the fact about how rambling these books are sometimes. Um, absolutely. And um, this is the only one of his, like, feminist era ones that Cynthia appears in. The Regulators and Desperation don't seem to particularly have that slant or be particularly female-led. Although they, the regulators has a magical autistic person, which is kind of terrible. Is this book connected to Dolores Claiborne or Gerald's Game? Because those books are connected, right, with the Eclipse? Yeah, those ones are literally connected because um, of the Eclipse. And I think Dolores Claiborne actually sees Jesse Burlingame from Gerald's Game during the Eclipse. Or at least her oh. as a little girl. Um, oh, wow. So they're literally connected. Um, but I did not see any connection between Rose Matter and those two books, other than they all are female-led and have his attempt at a feminist slant and are all from the same time period. Interesting. He seems to be definitely emphasizing this idea that men are beasts, um, and that might be an exaggeration of the man-hating lesbian as well. Um I mean, Norman literally turns into a beast. That's true. He turns into a minotaur. He Well, well he, he turns, turns into, into a, a man with the head of Ferdinand the Bull. Yes, that's more which accurate. Which is ridiculous. But I mean, I guess it does literally translate into a minotaur, which I thought was, I thought it was weird when I was rereading the book. I was like, oh, this isn't a minotaur in the labyrinth, like the Greek legend. It's, it's a bull. Um, but I guess Norman becomes the the metaphorical minotaur. Okay, and there definitely um, exists a, a a strict gender binary um, in the book. Um, there's there's no trans people. There's no uh, non-binary people or anything like that. Um, well, considering how everybody else is portrayed, I think we should be thankful for that. <laughs> yeah, you're probably right on that score. Who knows what it would have been like. And in fact, in the right. early 90s, most trans people were um, depicted as tricking regular people and causing them to vomit when they find out the truth. Um, and that happened in at least several movies that I can think of right off the top of my head, um, like um, Ace right. Ventura, uh, The Crying Game. Right, or um, they skinned people. Are, yes. Um, in uh, Silence of the Lambs. Um, mm-hmm. Or Soap Dish, that's another one that I thought of recently. Um, Kathy Moriarty turns out to be a, uh, a man. Um, it has oh. been tricking everybody. Um, and I th- and um, 
what is his name? Robert Downey Jr., I think, had been smooching her earlier on in the movie, um, becomes physically ill at the thought of having been tricked by a trans person. Oh, my goodness. Yeah, so... It it happens in The Naked Gun 3, too, when Anna Nicole turns out to have a penis. Oh, wow. Okay, so the 90s were a rough time for trans people and trans representation Mm -hmm. in general. Mm -hmm. So it's probably... Being the naked gun, they're probably parodying the crying game, but still. Yes, probably so. So I'm glad that uh, Stephen King did not feel the necessary to delve down that particular road. Um, I don't know what would be the point anyway. Um, But the book definitely... I, especially when I was especially reading it this time, um, I really felt Stephen King's baby boomer um, voice, um, it, you know, his baby boomer male, white, straight viewpoint. Um, and it's kind of painted this whole world of his where it, it incorporates all of those things and that everything outside of that you know, it exists, but, you know, as something different. Um, And that's another thing that I was thinking about when people are reading these books or when I was reading this as a teenager, um, how much was that worldview affecting me, especially when I read it over and over and over and over again in all of his books um, and how it affected other people. And was it, you know, just promoting this kind of viewpoint? Right. Especially since, especially for, for, from his perspective, this is progressive. Yeah, which is he. Yeah, he, you know he. Yeah, he has his own. You know, we all live in our own little bubbles, and he has his own little main bubble or whatever. And right. you know, this is his attempt, I guess, at trying to look outside of that. But it's still so colored by, by societal like uh, biases and stereotypes. Yeah. No, I I agree. And he does try to incorporate um, things outside of that viewpoint, um, like Black people, but when he does it, it is often um, the magical Negro trope. It's happened so many times in his books, over and over and over and over again, including the most specific representation of a magical Negro trope in The Green Mile, which came out the next year after this book. Um, There's even a magical Negro in rose matter that is that's just his idea of, of representation i guess yeah i, I remind the... me mm-hmm. um dorcas in the book um is another name for tabitha which is <gasps> his wife's name maybe that's the clue that she wrote it she hid it in there <laughs> like an easter egg like the guy who programmed adventure on the atari and hid his name in there Wow, I guess we're going to be promoting that theory. Um, mm-hmm. But yeah, I thought that was interesting. And I thought that can't be a coincidence. Um, I mean, Dorcas is a popular pur- Puritan name um, that I'm sure Stephen King would have been familiar with. But the fact, I mean, the fact that it's also another name for Tabitha just kind of stuck stuck out as probably not a coincidence. Yeah, I had no idea until you told me. But I thought that was interesting. But yeah, um, He's also represented um, handicapped people or differently abled people um, as being magical as well. Um, Like I said, there's the magical autistic kid in The Regulator. And then there's also magical Down syndrome people in Kingdom Hospital. Um, And there may be other examples, but 
that just kind of continues the trend of dehumanizing different people that aren't part of his worldview um, in an attempt to represent them as well. Well, one of the first Stephen King books I read as an adult was Cell, the zombie one. Did you read that one? I Yes, I did. And the leader of the zombies is this like black man in a Harvard sweatshirt who flies around and telepathically communicates with them. Oh my God. I do not remember that book very well. Yeah. But back to, back to Tabitha King, I, I would like to say that if she did write it, uh, I don't think she did because if she did, she would know how hair bleach works. Oh yeah. Cause Rose dyes her hair blonde. And then at the very end, Rose matter, the creature inside the painting tells her to wash the dye out of her hair. Yeah, I, I I think, yeah, that that is odd that when you mentioned that, but also she's a scary Greek lady that turns into a spider monster. So I don't think her her knowledge of hair products is going to be you know, <laughs> on on point. She's never going to be a Vidal Sassoon spokesperson. Probably not, especially if she turns into a giant spider monster. She probably doesn't care how how soft and thick her hair is or what color it is or how hair color works. But I did think that was a a little fair point. Um, But I don't um, ultimately to um, talk about that whole Tabitha King thing. I don't think Tabitha King wrote this. It all sounds like Stephen King, every Stephen King novel I've ever read. It does sound just like him. I mean, she is his wife and she's been married to him for a million years. So maybe she could she could sound like him, but it just sounds like him. Um, also, I think after all this time, we probably somebody would have said something. Somebody would have leaked something. Tabitha herself would have said something. Um, you know, his kids get credit for what they write, so I don't know why she wouldn't get credit, especially at this late stage. Um, I don't think it's a. I th- don't think it's a real thing. No, I don't either. I mean, all the ridiculous phrases are totally him, these phrases that he comes up with and the way the characters act like no other human being. Like how Norman sings the name game when killing people. Yes, I just thought of that as more boomer nonsense coming out of Stephen King. Um, Yes. And Norman too, because Norman had all these references like to leave it it to Beaver, um, the name game, um, just all kinds of stuff that is specifically boomer related. I thought the name game was particularly weird though, um, especially for Norman, but towards the end there, he might've done anything. I mean, he literally bit a man's dick off and swallowed him. (laughs) That's, that's true. That's what I think of anyone who sings the name game. I think they could bite my (laughs) dick off, especially if it's an adult. Um, But there is, you know, Mm-hmm. Oh, um, I I don't think I noticed that when I was reading this as a teenager. I read it a couple of times, um, and I don't think I specifically noticed that he literally bit the man's dick off and swallowed it. Um, especially mm. because I kind of skimmed through a lot of Stephen King's nonsense, and so I might have just skimmed right over it because it was very subtle when it happened, and then it's kind <laughs> of. I mean, not that subtle, but I mean, it's fairly written subtly when it happens and then alluded to afterwards. Um, And because at first I was like, did this really happen? Did he really bite a man's dick off and swallow it whole? And then, oh, yeah, sure enough, we're alluding to it. So that's exactly what happened. I was I was pretty surprised. That's the first thing. The first thing I did was tell tell somebody else. I was like, oh, my God, you won't believe what happened in this book. 
Yeah, there's nothing like a subtle cock goblin, that's for sure. <laughs> oh my god. <laughs> All right. Well, the the act itself is not subtle in any way. <laughs> Everything surrounding I mean, see- it was not subtle, but the specifics right. were kind of fluffed over. No, it, 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 you're right. I mean, because because it get it doesn't really get written about when it's happening. Um, at all the the writing about it is very weird because it's almost alluded to that Norman like blacks out during it and doesn't doesn't remember what he did which is another weird thing that it's almost like is he supposed to be absolved of guilt of this if it's not in his control that that was just a weird weird choice though I was just thinking of like he's gotten so crazy at this point he's having He's having blackouts or fugue states where he's just completely un- unable to control what he's doing or aware of it. I thought he had mentioned that before, though, that that was a habit of his. Like, even when he was, like, beating people as a police officer, sometimes right. he wouldn't remember what he did. But I don't. Fe- I didn't feel like it was supposed to absolve him of anything. Mm. Did you? No, but it just makes me think, you know, like if 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 he truly is out of control of his own actions, then you know, what are we supposed to be blaming him in well, this moment? Yeah, but those moments are extreme. There's plenty of other moments we can easily blame him for and vilify him. No, that for. I agree. Yeah, no, I agree. But that was just an odd, odd choice of character, you know. But I mean, that'd be a tough argument to make. I mean, regardless, he's biting men's dicks off and killing random women and burying them um he's definitely a problematic person biting dicks off is definitely problematic yeah that's your first clue that you might have an unstable person around you as if they're biting people's dicks off the first clue is that they're singing the name game (laughs) yes (laughs) the second clue is biting dicks off it's a slippery slope (laughs) (laughs) Uh, but yeah he does have that habit of saying things over and over again and like almost thinking they're funny like some old people do um like he's always saying viva zebul yeah and it took viva zebul and it took me a while to realize what that meant because it's spelled b-o-o-l zebul (laughs) yes and i'm like what accent what why does he keep saying this he says it so many times yeah, it becomes his rallying thing. cry. That's one interesting thing about Stephen King. Um, he's very, um, I don't know if good is the word, but he definitely does um, a lot of repetition of ideas and themes in his books. In every single book, um, you know, he will keep bringing up the same things over and over again. The same ideas, the same concepts, the same um, nonsense with the case of the name game. And I noticed Joe Hill, his son, kind of has that same tendency, or at least he definitely did in Nosferatu, the one novel of his that I read. I also read some short stories by him, but um, Joe Hill's novel, Nosferatu, he certainly seemed to have the same kind of repetition of ideas and concepts that um, Stephen King does. Yeah, that repetition, I mean, it does, on one hand, it makes it memorable. Yeah. But it gets repeated so much, we get the point of it. And it just, I don't know, to me, it, it, I mean, I guess it's night, you know, there's, there's a certain admirable quality that he is so unashamed of this stupid shit that he's not embarrassed to keep repeating it. But that definitely comes with a certain sense of entitlement. It does. Um, He could also probably be a a little more 
insightful on what he chooses to repeat over and over again. Um, like, do we really need the name game repeated over and over again? Or maybe, you know, something more interesting or relevant to it overall theme or um, idea. Um, you're definitely right, though. It definitely is a testament to Stephen King's entitlement that um, he is just fine with babbling out whatever nonsense pops into his head and <laughs> selling it to us and selling it to us part four. <laughs> He's been doing it for 40 years. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Do you have any final thoughts on the book? Um, I don't think so. I do know that there is um, some trivia we can do if you're interested in doing that. Okay. Yeah. Quiz me. All right. I shall. All right. You ready? I'm ready. I'm always ready. Question number one. What is the maiden name of Rose from Rose Matter by Stephen King? It's Mick something. McClendon. You are correct. Good job. I wasn't even sure about that one until you said it. So, yes. I had to look it up when I was writing my summary. So, next question. What actress did Anna Stevenson remind Rosie of? B. Arthur. Yes. Wow. That is amazing that you knew that. Mm-hmm. Next question. Why did Rosie turn right when she left her house? Because she's right-handed. No, or, yeah, well, because she's left-handed. And Norman told her that people unconsciously turn in the direction of their dominant hand, and she wanted to go the opposite direction. Yes, and you know what? That's something that stuck in my head from when I very first read this book was was that whole people just randomly go in the direction of their dominant hand. It's always stuck with me. Is that? Do you think that's true? Um, I don't know. Um, probably. Are you left? You're left-handed, right? No, I am right-handed. Oh, okay. You're left-handed, though, right? No, I'm right-handed. Oh my god! And I always go right in mazes. Do you? Mm-hmm. Interesting. Well, well, I, I have don't... a maze strategy, but like. But generally, I usually I go right first when I have to pick a direction, like in a video right. game or something. Interesting. I don't know what I do. I've never noticed before, which is weird because well, this did stick with me. I guess I'll. And you can't notice because it's subconsciously. You well, can you only can notice after the fact. That's true. I feel like when I'm getting off a subway and I don't know where I'm going, which is every time I get off a subway since I live <laughs> in the woods, that I usually go to the right. And then I have to turn around. I'm trying to think of an example from my own life, but I'm coming up blank. So maybe we should move on. Move on. What did Anna call the force that brought Rosie to daughters and sisters? The force? Like Star Wars? Uh Uh-huh. Fate? What? Fate. F-A-T-E, fate. She called it fate. Was it it fate? I don't know. You said you knew the answer. You said you knew the answer to these questions. I was pretty sure about this one. I think she said Providence. That sounds right. Because didn't she say Providence with a capital P or something like that? If I knew, I would have answered that. Okay, well, we should definitely prepare a better quiz for next time. (laughs) (laughs) I just was looking them up last night and I was like, well, we should do a good (laughs) one. That way it's not like specifically from some company or something, but. Yeah. I forgot that Goodreads wants you to actually answer them. They don't provide you with the answer. I thought they did. Um, oh, th- I thought they did after you answered them. I guess I nobody's they were all multiple choice. Ones. No, they're not multiple choice. 
Oh. Um, actually, I think they can be whatever people want them to be because I've made up a question before. So um, they can be whatever you want, I guess. Wow. It's really inspirational. Yeah, I'll do better hunting for quizzes next time. Um, are you okay. ready for the next question? Oh, we're still doing this? Sure. <laughs> what pro football player is mentioned in Rose Matter? What? Oh, what William the Refrigerator football? Perry. Yes, I couldn't believe that I actually knew this one. Um, I remember the refrigerator part. I wasn't sure about the other names. Yeah, I think it's William Perry. Awesome. I'm impressed. Because he says, because they say Gert looks like him. Yes. I couldn't figure out where that reference was to begin with. So I would just assume that I would know it. Um, But then when I made the connection, I was like, oh, yeah. Um, Next question. What is the name of the bowl? Ferdinand. No, that is incorrect. Oh, Zibul. No, that's still wrong. Oh, the one in the the one in the maze, the the real that was one. Actually, a ball. Yes. Oh God, uh, what was his name? Uh, what does it start with? What letter? E. Aaron Aaron Trude Ermagerd. I don't know. Aaron, yes. Aaron, yes. I was close. Yeah, I tried to look up this name to try to figure out why he decided to name the bull this. It seems almost random um, is what the word was actually referencing. Um, But I'm not quite sure what the connection was with the bull and the maze and the Stephen King. I don't know. Oh, that's weird because the Furies (laughs) were female and he's giving a female name to a male monster bull. Yeah. Oh, we have one more question. Are you ready for this? I'm so ready. I'm so ready for this quiz to be over. (laughs) The question is, what was Rose Matter's advice to Rosie? Is it wash the dye out of your hair? I'm going to assume that's the answer, yes. These are very vague questions. Good reads. I'll do better next time. Oh, I did have another AIDS-related thing. Um, (laughs) I know. I'm just always talking about AIDS. Um, <laughs> ham. Um, oh, I'm sorry. I thought you said ham. <laughs> no, not ham. Pam. Pam um, mentions that she's so scared of AIDS, um, and I think that was really representative of the time period as well. Um, AIDS is practically like the unseen monster of this book. Like I almost like if this were if this novel had any sort of literary aspirations i would expect it to actually be a commentary or something to happen with aids but it's just there you know it's just like an incidental incidental threat uh you know like an existential threat it's not humanized in any way a representation of the anxiety around aids especially for people like stephen king that are wide and straight um, who hadn't been suffering through it through most of the 80s, completely ignored. Um, mm-hmm. And now that it's out in the open, now these these white straight people are are also realizing that it's a threat and that it's scary. Um, and the book really seems to emphasize that that overall anxiety without any reason to other than that's when it was written. Maybe it was a subconscious thing from Stephen King about his own anxieties related to HIV. Which, as a, you know, theoretically monogamously married straight man shouldn't be an issue. 
Well, he did a lot of drugs back in the day, though. Oh, yeah. But no, it, it no. You're you're right, though. I I don't think it should have been something he should have been overly concerned about. Um, and it doesn't well, seem not like for himself. Yeah. Yeah, and it doesn't seem like there's a, a purpose in the book for it. Um, and I don't think he was purposely trying to represent the time period or its anxieties. So I guess it's just something that exists, something that's there. Well, I saw someone on Goodreads refer to this as a gritty urban drama, which I thought was uh, ridiculous. But, you know, that, that could be maybe how he viewed it. And he thought AIDS would add a little little grit. Um, I'm sorry. I realized that I did have other things about Rose Matter I wanted to talk about now. Um, in particular, it is Stephen King's treatment of domestic abuse um, and domestic abuse victim. And the issue that some people have with the book is that it's kind of taking away from the, the real life horror of domestic abuse and domestic abuser. And that like Norman and that, well, there's the supernatural element. Rosie can't empower herself or have much of a character arc because the supernatural element is kind of doing it for her in a way that real abuse victims are, are not going to have access to. They can't climb into paintings and have evil spider monsters eat their, their abusers. Um, so there's that aspect of it. And there's also um, Norman. Norman becomes so over the top, he becomes completely unrealistic and takes away from the real life horror of domestic abuse and domestic abuser what do you think of that yeah (laughs) (laughs) i agree i mean also just i mean just the phrase cornhold with the tennis racket proves that he's not taking it seriously yeah um exactly and it it's it's too bad because the book probably would have been much improved by removing the supernatural elements and focusing on how terrible and horrifying real life domestic abuse can be he, well i, I just, mean like i i actually liked the supernatural elements because i just well, don't I think too. stephen king i don't think he could write a, a realistic novel on this subject matter but um, there's, so there's an article on tour.com where they did a stephen king reread a few years ago and yes. when when writing about Rose Matter, um, it says King has frequently said that lots of people come up to him and say this is the book that gave them the courage to leave their abusive spouses. OK, but but there's no citation <laughs> like there's other things, interviews mentioned in this article that are hyperlinked. But this one isn't. That's odd, um, but I can definitely understand why some people might have read the book and, you know, been empowered to do so or inspired to. Um, it doesn't mean he handled it well, though. Um, and lots of right. people like Stephen King, and they'll derive any meaning out of it that they want to, honestly, depending on their own personal experience. So I definitely think that it can inspire people to to get away from their abusers and have a positive impact on the world, but um, it isn't done well in any capacity. What do you think? Yes. Okay, great. <laughs> Good talk. Yeah. Let's see here. What else do we got going on? With this book? No. Anything else? Oh, good. No. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry. Is that your answer? So anything other yes. than this book? No. Nothing. I would love to talk about anything other than Rose Matter. Okay. Like what? I am done. Okay, wow. Um, So next time we are going to be looking at Elevation, as I've mentioned about 50 times in this particular podcast. 
which um, should be a much shorter discussion, considering it is a very short little baby book. Um, Let's hope. Yeah. So we'll see how that goes. All right. So we're done here. We are. All right. Well, thank you for listening to Gross Misinterpretation. Um, If you are listening to this, let us know what you think, however that happens. So until next time, be curious. Viva Zibul. (laughs) Bye.